this opportunity as your children to gather around your word. We pray that you'll help us uh, to depend on the Spirit. Uh, we know that your word is true. We know that our lives are supposed to be shaped by it. Spirit, we need you to be at work in us. We thank you for this psalm that points us to Jesus, and we pray that we will see him clearly. We pray this in his name. Amen. I know y'all don't have a lot of participation in this type of service, so just to give you a chance to stretch your legs and also to show honor to God's word, I'm going to have you stand as I read Psalm 2. You'll find that psalm printed for you here in your worship folder. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to this text, uh, this next psalm in our study... Uh, It's a psalm about Jesus. Jesus is the son that's prefigured here. Israel had its king, and its king was supposed to prefigure the true king. Uh, And so as you read this, you know that David was the closest thing to Jesus that was pictured in the kingship uh, of Israel. That's how God sort of, uh, that's how he draws attention to David. He says, a man after my own heart. And David was flawed. David was a sinner. David had ample opportunity and reason to repent, and so he's not the perfect picture of the son, the anointed, but he points to Jesus. And so this is a psalm about Jesus, but the framework of this psalm is helping us see who Jesus is, why we need him, primarily in light of our sin. This is a psalm about sin. Uh, And as we approach this psalm, I I was thinking about an experience that I had that maybe many of you had if you had a philosophy class in college or if you studied some philosophy or uh, maybe maybe in high school you had a philosophy class. You may have come across uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Nietzsche is essentially, you could think of him as um, a philosopher who did a lot of polemics against religion and also against the concept of sins. I'm going to read a couple of quotes from Nietzsche. He said, sins are indispensable to every society organized on an ecclesiastical basis. So every, every society that has religion as part of its lifeblood, because sin is the only reliable weapon of power. The priest lives upon sins. It's necessary to him that there be sinning. So if you understand what Nietzsche is saying, he's saying we have this construct called sin that religion has given to us so that religion can subjugate us. You have to have sin if religion's going to have power, and those in power who are religious want to maintain their power. That's his basic uh, approach to sin. Sin's a construct that the powerful use to oppress the weak. Then he went on in a different uh, article and said, it was Christianity which first painted the devil on the world's walls. It was Christianity which first brought sin into the world. Belief in the cure which it offered has now been shaken to its deepest roots, but belief in the sickness which it taught and propagated continues to exist. 
So he's saying Christians brought sin so that they could subjugate, but we've eradicated Christianity. Now we have to eradicate this construct that Christians brought with them, this idea of sin. We need to get rid of this idea of sin, this social construct. And we know on some level, I'm, I'm, you know, we're followers of Jesus who are gathered here for worship. That doesn't sound right to us. Like Nietzsche's off on this. But then we also just look around our world, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, like how do you make sense of what we see in the world if we don't have an understanding of the brokenness and the sin uh, that is permeating our world? So we're going to talk about sin this morning, and we're going to do so uh, because the reality is we know Nietzsche is wrong, but at the same time, this, I'm just going to pick on our generation. This has probably been true for multiple generations, but I live in this generation, and, and our generation doesn't like the word sin. That's why we love the word mistake. Uh, we, we would even prefer the word failure because failure has a context in which we tried, but we didn't succeed. Mistake was it wasn't my intention, but this ended up being what happened. Or one of my favorites, you know, I had a slip up. A slip up. I love, love a good slip up, right? We'd rather say any of those things than sin because none of them could bear the moral weight of this idea of Sin. But the psalmist here intends for us to wrestle with sin because a grounded perspective on our sin, without that, we're going to struggle to worship God well. We're going to struggle to worship him for who he really is. We're going to struggle to see him the way he is, to see the world the way he sees the world. We're going to struggle to understand why the hope he offers to us is real hope. If we don't understand sin, then we don't have the framework for understanding his grace and his mercy and his passion for bringing healing and wholeness to our world. So we have to wrestle with sin. And very quickly this morning, what we're going to do is run through a couple things we see in the psalm. We, we have the psalmist helping us see sin the way it really is, but he also helps us see sin the way that God sees it, and he offers us the hope that God offers to sinners at the end of the psalm. So first, let's talk about seeing sin for what it is. And verses 2 and 3 say this, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We're tempted to go straight in this psalm and just think about kind of big power structures in the world. Why do the cultural forces of the world do X, Y, or Z? But I hope you see in this psalm we have essentially the king set against all other kings. And in a sense, it's better for us to understand the psalmist saying there's the one true king, the true blessed one, and then there's all the rest of us that wish we could be our own kings. This is not primarily a critique on non-Christian cultures. This is primarily a critique on the rebellion that resides in every sinner's heart who wants to be king, and so they rebel against the true king. It's much more personal. It can be applied broadly, but it's much more personal. And so here we have this understanding that the psalmist has that since the fall, our hearts have been aligned against the right rule of God. We haven't wanted God to rule mankind or his creation. That's what happened at the fall. Adam and Eve decided they thought they would be a better king and queen of the universe than the king, and so they rebelled. Now, this, is, this fallen perspective shows up here in this psalm because the psalmist says, hey, let's, let's break the bonds, right? Let's break the bonds. Let's throw off these Cords. That idea of bonds where it says right here, let us burst their bonds apart in verse 3, that's that same Hebrew word of when um, the Philistines bound up Samson and he burst the bonds. They were trying to subjugate Samson and he was going to be freed from them. It's this language of someone's trying to oppress us, let's be free from them. 
That's the call. It's a call of freedom. And that's what rebellion sounds like to the rebel. To the rebel, it's always a, a call to freedom. Someone's trying to take from me what will make me happy, what will provide joy, what will provide sustenance. That person must be overcome. I have to burst the bonds. And so here we have a fallen perspective on God's leadership, and it says God doesn't want what's best for me. Therefore, I have to be free from him. Uh, when I was growing up in, and in high school, Sheryl Crow had this song, real popular, in, I think in 1997, it won a Grammy. Uh, it was called, If It Makes You Happy. And so the, the refrain is, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. And I was thinking about that over and against John Owen, who died many, many years before Sheryl Crow. And John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you, which that song wouldn't actually sell. Not in the 90s and not now either. But you'll see the, the difference there. Sheryl Crow speaking to a culture saying, hey, we're our own kings. And anyone who tells us not to do something that makes us happy, doesn't love us, isn't for us, doesn't care about us. We have to break their bonds. Whereas John Owen is telling us, sin is enslaving you. If you want true freedom, then you have to go back to the true king. And so we have this tension, this rebellion tension here. In our pluralist society, it's okay to have faith. Just don't talk about it and don't pretend like it should rule your life or anybody else's. If you want to pretend like it rules your life, that's okay. But the reality is you chose your faith, therefore you are king of your faith and you can live your life however you want, but don't try to infringe on my kingship and my life. And so this call to freedom, it resonates with our culture, it resonates with our hearts because we're all sinners. And sin is rebellion, it's, a, it's rejecting God's rule, it's authority over us, it's bursting the bonds of his authority. And that's why when people call us out on our sin, we feel like we're being attacked. When we're confronted with our sin, we become naturally defensive and angry because it's someone encroaching on what we think is our territory to rule. And we see this in all kinds of areas. I mean, maybe it's in anger. Maybe you, have, maybe you just have rage. And the way you speak to your wife or the way you speak to your children, or the way you speak to your mom or the way you speak to your husband or the way you speak to your employees, it just it drips anger and rage. And when someone calls you out on it, you feel even more rage because how dare they tell you how to live your life? And then if they're a follower of Jesus and they tell you, look, look what Jesus says about hatred, look at what he says about anger, you're like, don't, no, Jesus, Jesus, can't, Jesus can't lead me in this area because if Jesus really loved me, he wouldn't have given me these problems that I have with my marriage. Jesus wouldn't give me a, a place where my employees were so disrespectful. Jesus wouldn't have put me in a place where there's so much tension. So Jesus isn't a good king, so Jesus can't tell me not to be angry. We don't think that uh, succinctly about it, but functionally, it's how we behave, it's how we live. And those things can be applied all over the place. You can think of, why do I gossip? Why do I slander? Why am I a glutton? Why am I greedy? It's because I think my life is better engaging in those activities. And if Jesus tells me I can't, then I'm not going to listen to Jesus because those things bring me some degree of satisfaction, and I don't believe he'll bring me any degree of satisfaction. And so we reject his kingship. And all of sin is that type of rebellion. And it was helpful from this week thinking about the prodigal son. We have the prodigal son who says to his father in, in the parable that Jesus shared, essentially he says to his father, you don't love me. Your rule over me is bad. I don't want any part of you. I just want your money. Give me your money. I'm going to go be free. And his father gives him his money. And he goes and he's free. And then the story goes on and he ends up squandering everything that he had and he's eating with the pigs and he realizes what a fool I've been. 
And so he returns to the Father. And we see in this psalm, through the rhetorical questions at the beginning, that sin is not only rebellion, but it's just foolish rebellion. There's rhetorical questions that start the psalm where it says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? It's a rhetorical question. So why would you? And it's rhetorical on two levels. Uh, well, it's rhetorical. There aren't two levels of being rhetorical. It's rhetorical, and there's two levels uh, of assessment we can place on it. One is, it's foolish for you to rebel against God because futile, uh, no, resistance is futile. You guys remember that? Was it the Borg movie with the Star Trek? No, just me. But I think it was a Star Trek movie where they had an, an alien race that was coming and trying to subjugate humanity, and they said resistance is futile. In a sense, I mean, God's not an alien force coming to subjugate humanity at all, but there is a foolishness that says, who do you think you are to try and resist the rule of the true king over the whole universe? It's just foolish. But then there's another level. It's so foolish for us to try and resist the one who actually loves us, who actually cares for us. We're resisting the one who longs for us to experience flourishing and wholeness. Why would we resist him? Why would we rebel against him? And that's that prodigal son idea. Why would I leave my father who loves me to go and spend my life trying to find my value amongst people who don't care about me? And so we return to the father. All right, I gotta move a lot faster here. So let's move on. So that's seeing sin for what it is. It's foolish rebellion. But we also get to see sin the way that God sees it in this text. And this is verses 4 through 9. I'm not going to go in detail verse by verse here, but what we have is an, an uncomfortable insight. Like We don't often talk about this, and so this psalm actually makes us uncomfortable because God laughs at and holds these rebels in derision, meaning he's disgusted by them. He's not intimidated by, his, by rebellion. He's disgusted by it. And we, just, we don't love that idea when it comes to God. Honestly, I think for most of us, we just want God to be brokenhearted for us. We want him to be brokenhearted over what a mess our lives are, what a mess our world is. We want him to love us, and we want him to be compassionate towards us, and we want him to look at us and say, I'm so sorry things are the way they are. And on one level, God is brokenhearted over sin and the effect that it's had on his world and on his people. But if we only look at that, it becomes a half-truth that's very dangerous. And the psalmist shows us the other side of the coin. And that is God hates sin. He hates sin, and it's not just this ethereal hatred of sin. He is aligned against those who have rebelled against him. God stands against rebels, not just the idea of rebellion. And he sends the son. We see that here in the psalm. He sends Jesus. One of the reasons he sends Jesus is to make his world right again by defeating rebels. He is also going to defeat ethereal rebellion, but he's, he's coming because there are individual rebels aligned against him as well. And we have to acknowledge that. God's not just brokenhearted over our sin. He's disgusted by it. It's offensive to him. And that helps us understand the beauty of the gospel because our sin is offensive to God. We are the rebels that he sent his son to deal with, but the way that he goes about dealing with our sin is to forgive us and execute his wrath on his son. Do you understand? We, we can see the beauty of the gospel. It's not this that God was hoping he could help us be better. He had to deal with how bad we were and are. And he did that through the giving of his son. Now, when God looks on, on rebellion, it makes him angry, and yet he has this 
this love and this grace and this mercy, and that's his posture towards sin. It disgusts him and it makes him angry. But then we also see in this text that God looks at sin and he says, sin is a plight on my world. I'm going to send my king to my holy hill. And he's going to, it sounds, if you look with me uh, at verse 8, verse 8 sounds awesome. He says to Jesus, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. We're like, that is beautiful. And then he says, what what does he mean by that? Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Like, oh, that's not as pleasant. Make us his heritage, but don't dash us to pieces. Like the, we want one, but not the other. And what we see here is God looks at the world, and he looks at the sinners and rebellion in the world, and God's not going to leave the world enslaved to sin, and he's not going to leave the world in, sort of, uh, run by tyrant rebels. He's not going to leave the world this way. He wouldn't be God, and he wouldn't be good if he did. And if we think about it, we look at our world, and we know that our world is broken. We see plight in our world. We've been, we've been lamenting together as a nation for weeks now over the death of George Floyd because we can see the plight of sin. We can see the plight of brokenness and it hurts us. And we want Jesus to make things right. When we see, uh, we hear stories of genocide or if we hear of a school shooting or when we hear about Indian and Chinese soldiers killing each other with rocks and sticks as they fall down a mountainside on a border, like the world is ravaged by sin, and we want Jesus to come and to break it. So there's certain aspects of the world and certain aspects of sin. We'd say, yeah, Jesus, I want you to show up. I want you to dash that to pieces. I want you to break it. But it's easier for us when we think about those on only the grand scale. Because I've never, I've never had genocide actually personally touch me. I've never been complicit that I know of in genocide, at least not directly, And so to have Jesus come and deal with genocide sounds great. To have him come and deal with apathy and parenting, that doesn't sound so great. Jesus, surely my apathy, my lack of engagement, my workaholism, my alcoholism, surely those things are not actually contributing to the brokenness of the world that needs to be dashed to pieces. Surely it's just the big things that you need to deal with. We need to understand that when God looks at all sin, all sin mars and disfigures his creation disfigures his world and disfigures his people. All of it needs to be dealt with. The big stuff that's grand and it makes the news and the little stuff that will never make the news. All of that is rebellion that is marring God's world. And so we see here in this psalm that what we need is for Jesus to show up in ways that dash our sin to pieces, that dash our experience in this life to pieces so that it can be remade into the world that is his heritage. If we want the experience of being his heritage, of being his possession, he has to break the hold that our sin has on us. And it's a, it's a hold that we have planted there. We're not victims of our sin, we're perpetrators of our sin. And that's why it hurts so much when he dashes it to pieces. And I'm almost out of time, but I want to leave you with a word of hope, which hopefully some of this has been hopeful all along. But the last thing we see in this text, verses 10 through 12, we have, we have the psalmist saying to the kings, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son. And then it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So one thing, one piece of hope for us right now is God's patience. This psalm is calling people who are actively in rebellion to return to the true king. God's patience creates the context in which the gospel takes, takes hold of hearts. 
So the fact that God is patient is something each one of us has experienced the blessing of, which means we can celebrate that. The God who is holy and deals with sin is also patient and loving. And then the last thing to leave you with is the hope of the gospel that we see here. Kiss the son, take refuge in him. Kiss the son and take refuge in him. And there's a beautiful picture here where we're told to kiss the son and take refuge in him. But as we see that the psalmist is anticipating the gospel, but as we see the son come for us, we realize the beauty of the gospel is that we never were going to kiss the son. The son came and kissed us. The son came for us. The son came to, bring, to take us under his wings. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that there is anger that's kindled quickly towards sin. There is perishing and wrath that have to be experienced. But the son himself took the perishing and the wrath and the anger and he absorbed it for us. So what we see in this text is a call for us to take seriously our sin and to fall more in love with our Savior, with the Son, because we see our own sin and our own need that much more clearly. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thanks for this time. Thank you for an opportunity to gather as your brothers and sisters around this psalm. Lord, there is so much in here. Jesus, we, we are thankful that you are the one who comes and you, you dash things to pieces. You're the one who comes with a rod of iron and you break apart uh, the world that we've created because of our sin and our desire to be uh, our own rulers and our own kings. Lord, we confess to you, Jesus, that there, is things, that there are things in our lives right now that we, we don't want to say them out loud, but we really hope that you don't see them and you won't dash them. And those are the things we need you to come after. And so we pray that you will help us to see and to rejoice as you break the hold of sin on each and every one of us, as you break our rebellion. Thank you for giving yourself for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.